I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, July 17th, 2022, and this is episode 178 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing... Uh, a couple of great good things happened this week, but I got new glasses. I picked them up this week. I've been waiting for them for a month, and it's been not quite a week. So I'm still in that stage where my depth perception is off. Glasses wearers might know what I'm talking about, although I feel like I have this a lot more intense than other people. Also, these are progressives. They're like tri- trifocal progressive lenses. So Everything, like the first day, I felt like I was eight feet tall. You know, my feet were too far away. My, I was having trouble grabbing things because my arms looked too long. If you've never had that experience when putting on a new pair of glasses, then great for you because it's still kind of like that. It's getting better. And they can say with progressives, it can take up to two weeks for that, that sensation to go away. And at some point, your brain just snaps and it just, everything just starts going. It feels like normal again, but for me, not yet. Anyway, I do like them. I can see better. It is annoying to get used to new glasses and all the the three different, you know, focal lengths that I'm dealing with, but it had been a long time and hopefully these work out. The last period didn't work out so well. So my writing update, I was working on Beastly Kingdom, the sequel to Savage City, which came out earlier this year. And I'm at the point where I had begun the first draft and then taken a break to continue plotting. And so I had gotten the plot pretty solid up until the midpoint. And then I was just having all kinds of trouble figuring out specifically what was going on, shoring up the plot threads and the character arcs and all of that. And so I'm using the software plotter to do this and trying to just get, you know, a really good overview of each scene so that when I go back to the first draft, I know what I'm doing. That's the plan anyway. Inside of Plotter, there are templates for scenes, and I've been mostly using the story grid template. So in in the software, I'm filling out the POV for the scene, and then story grid elements are desire, inciting an incident, progressive complications, turning point, crisis, climax, and resolution. I've also been using the scene sequel methodology, and I have this chart that I print out and keep on my desk. And it goes through that, which is scene goals, um, the method used to achieve the goal, conflict, the disaster, reaction, dilemma, and decision. And so they kind of match up, but sometimes it helps me to think about them in you know the story grid terminology, and sometimes it helps to think about it in the scene sequel terminology. And often I make sure that my resolution includes a decision. So, you know, the turning point here is the disaster in the other method, and those line up. And then the the back half of the story grid, I think the crisis, climax, and resolution kind of match up to a sequel. It's not perfect. And the terminology can be confusing because what I call a scene or a story grid scene is a scene and a sequel sometimes. And then you have to kind of figure out, because some scenes are just sequels. They don't have a character trying to achieve a goal and, you know, hitting a conflict and then having a disaster. That's already happened. Some scenes are the quieter um, sequels where they're reacting to a thing that has just happened in a previous scene. And then they have this dilemma of what to do next. 
which is like the crisis question in the story story grid. And then they have a decision to make, which leads to the next scene and the next goal um, and the next conflict. So you kind of have to hold a bunch of things in your head and understand, okay, I'm talking about the story scene and not necessarily the scene versus sequel scene. And sometimes I do wish that the terminology was different, but we're kind of working through like hundreds of years of storytelling from like the three act structure, which, oh, it's three acts, but act two is really twice as long. And we split act two into two parts. So some people will call that four acts and some people will stay with the uh, Aristotelian three acts, uh, but just know there's act two, part one and act two, part two. And all of like talking about all of this, it, you know, can just get needlessly complex. Uh, but it is what it is. Anyway, I was in the scene just struggling with the turning point slash disaster of the scene. And I ended up trying to find, and actually had to print it out again because I couldn't find it in my paperwork that's all over the place. This article on scene turning points that I've used for years and keep going back to over and over again because it's just so good. And I will link to it in the show notes. It's from an author's blog, an author named Lee Allen Howard. And he really just breaks down what a turning point is supposed to do and, you know, how it changes the value of the scene, the polarity change, according to Robert McKee, of, you know, the character's goal in the scene and how the turning point you know, they're starting with this goal, this disaster or turn happens, and it throws them off track. Either they meet the goal, but something else happens, or they don't meet the goal, and then they have to try again. And sometimes I just need that reinforcement of like, what is this scene trying to do? And what are the obstacles? And then what changes in the scene? Something has to change. Either the character changes or the circumstances, you know, in this chart that I have, I can link to this as well. It gives you suggestions of things that might happen. So suggestions of goals, like the goals could be something concrete, an object or a person, something intangible, information or admiration, an escape from something physical, an escape from something mental, or an escape from something emotional, and things like that. So when it gets to disaster, you know, a disaster could be a death, physical injury, emotional injury, discovery of complicating information, a personal mistake, a threat to personal safety, or danger to someone else. And for me, it really helps to have those examples there that I can kind of pick from, especially when I'm struggling with a scene. Often it's the discovery of complicating information, which changes the value of a character's goal in the scene from positive to negative or negative to positive. And, um, but also danger, injury, those are kind of more higher level, higher stakes turns. Every, every scene can't have a huge disaster. And so sometimes that that word disaster for every scene makes you feel like you have to do something more dramatic, where turning point takes the pressure off. And it's like, oh, they just learned that this door is locked for this hallway they need to go down. So next scene is about finding the key or finding another way to unlock it. It can be as simple as that. So yeah, I was you know, diving back into turning points and refreshing myself on this, which is, you know, why I have the books, why I have, I have a whole folder full of reference information that worksheets I've printed out, articles I've printed out and highlighted uh, from just, you know, surfing around and I find something really good and I'm like, I need to keep that. So I'll save it. I'll print it in as a PDF, save it on my hard drive and also print it out so that I have the hard copy there to refer to. And that's sort of how I go through my writing life uh, and having these references. 
So I got through that and actually managed to get through the rest of the book, plotting it. I didn't do the detailed story grid for every scene. I did it up until about the midpoint. And then after that, kind of is no point because it it usually changes. And I don't feel like I need that level of detail right now. What I'll do is when I get to that point in writing the first draft, I will usually go day by day. And so I say, okay, this is the scene I want to do this day. Let me do the story grid for it. Let me get the detail and then write it. And then sort of shortening that process because the second half of the book really depends so much on what what I do in the first half and the discoveries that I make and the decisions that I make that I don't want to plan it in such detail up front. But I did need a lot more detail than I had going in. And so now I feel like I have more of a a detailed outline and I'm, I'm much more comfortable about where that story is and where it's going. And I, I discovered a lot of things even doing this process that I know I'm going to build on when I do my fast first draft. Another thing that I had to do when thinking about the story holistically, and I'd actually managed to fix something that I didn't realize was broken by doing this process, is the idea of closing doors in the order that you open them. And that's something I got from Mary Robinette Cowell on the Writing Excuses podcast, where I first heard her talk about that. So talking about like subplots or maybe not even subplots, but kind of ideas. So we have, we start out with the the setup of this, of the two characters. So this is a romance. There is the hero and the heroine in the story. They both start out with their own problems, like the, the problem before the problem of the story. And then the plot drops with the inciting incident that takes us into the story question. But these two characters both have pre-existing issues that the story is going to help us solve. So you have to, or you should, for a satisfying reading experience, you should solve those problems in the order that you introduced them. So if at the very beginning I have, you know, my hero starts out the story, he's dealing with an issue like a personal internal conflict, heroine is, is also, they meet, we have an inciting incident, the story starts, that sort of story question gets answered, then um, the heroine's internal arc and the hero's internal arc. So in the order that you open the door, you close those doors, like a nested thing. So I made a list of the order that I was introducing these problems and these issues and these subplots, and then planning for the order that I was going to close them. And in most cases, I am doing that. I'm doing it in order so that it feels satisfying. Then we have the epilogue, which sort of is a continuation or an added disaster to the main story question, which you can you know use to lead us into book three. And I realized that I had not planned to close my heroine's internal arc. Like, it was just disappearing. It was sort of like, you're going to intuit that she's okay now, right? Because she solved the story question and she's in love because it's a romance. But I hadn't put it on the page. And so that gave me an idea for a scene that I needed, that I didn't know I needed. Um, and now that's in my outline. And so that kind of exercise proved really important. I did it in my notebook with color-coded pens, you know, and just sort of starting a list and then making brackets so that I could see the opening and the closing and the order. And then I was able to move some things around in my outline to correspond to that. So that was a really good exercise to do. During that process, I also used the Save the Cat methodology on a specific plot line to figure out the beats because, you know, I I have a couple of subplots and with a, with a subplot, you know, each subplot needs 
all of the structure of a regular full story, even if it takes up a small part of the book. And you don't have to show all of those beats on the page, but they have to happen somehow, even if they're not on the page. So this was a case where in this story, Save the Cat is working. And, you know, last week I was talking about when Save the Cat failed me and wasn't working for the other book I'm working on. But here it is working. And I, and I, it was good to ground me and to make me feel confident that, okay, this subplot is working and I don't have to show all of the beats, but they're there and they, they coincide with the larger story question. You know, the internal arcs have their own beats. They might match up with other subplots, other arcs of the story, but everything, each story should be complete in its own way. And I feel good about all of that. The other manuscript that I'm working on, my Black Towns historical fantasy story. So I'm getting ready to dive back into the revision. I've planned out the revision. The next scene I was looking at was another character's POV. So it's the introduction of the second POV character. And I realized I didn't know enough about him. So instead of working on the scene, I had to take a step back. And I went back to One Stop for Writers, to their detailed character profile, which I really love, at this stage. And I did the full character profile for this character, and that helped a lot. And this, you know, you end up with like a 12-page profile. And it's not surface-level stuff. Like there are other character profiles like, oh, what, what's his favorite breakfast cereal? And, you know, what's his favorite movie? And those things I've never found helpful because I'm just making stuff up. But it dives deep into the wound and the lie and the behavior and the characteristics and positive traits and negative traits and histories and, you know, what what are their false beliefs and why are their false beliefs and who are their mentors and, you know, how do they get these positive characters, who do they, characteristics, who did they learn them from? And so it helps you flesh out the backstory and also all of the internal stuff that's going on. And so... Once I did that, I felt better. I also dove into the Enneagrams of these two main characters, these two POV characters of that book. I realized I didn't have an Enneagram for this particular character. And I did some research on some websites that, that do, you know, Enneagrams in relationships. So, you know, he's a three, she's a two, or maybe it's vice versa in this personality typing system and how do they interact? What are their points of conflict? And there are Enneagram websites that will give you information about, okay, these are, you know, for these two points, you just, there's a grid and you can say, okay, eights and nines, you know, where are they going to clash and where are they going to come together? And that helped as well. So a lot of just research this week, plot work, character work, not really writing words. That is coming next week because I feel like on both of these projects, I feel good about the 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 sort of pre-production, even though I'm kind of in the middle of both of them. I don't want to call it admin work, but the the stuff you have to do that is not writing the words so that you can get to write the words. I've been doing that and I feel like I'm at the end of that. Some of that is still going to come in the middle of writing, you know, I might get to another character that I just don't know enough about and have to take a step back. And I don't think there are going to be any more characters I have to do full profiles on, because these are the main two POVs of the book. And usually I don't do these profiles for characters who are not POV characters. But I might just have to figure out other character traits for other people who are in the scene. So I know their motivations and all of that. And that's part of writing. Part of writing is just like writing the words and then stopping and realizing, hmm, 
I need to do some research about that. Uh, like, this is the revision for this book. So this is where the details come in and the decision-making happens. And so, whereas I might've just had, you know, she hides behind bush. I have bush in all caps because I want to give a specific type of plant that is, you know, indigenous to the area and that looks the way I want it to look. And I don't know anything about plants. So I have to like research, okay, what are plants that might be near the river in this state, in this area, and will be full enough that she can hide behind and not be seen, you know, that kind of thing. Those little details, I do stop and in the middle of writing and find that answer and then put it in because I'm past the point where I just had a placeholder for all of these things. I'm at the point where I had to draw the map of the town and I have to know, I've named some streets just randomly, but like, where is this intersection? How far is this? How long does it take to walk from here to here? Those are important. Now. This is the revision. This is where the rubber meets the road and the details come in. So, Also my favorite part of writing, but uh, the longest part. And so once I get a few scenes under my belt, I will be able to do a schedule and figure out, okay, how long do I think this is going to take? How long has it been taking this week? And then I probably will feel a little bit better about deadlines and things like that. I wanted to give a shout out to a new writing podcast that's just started. It is Lefty Obi's writing podcast. Lefty is a listener and uh, she's doing her own writing podcast about her journey. So if you're interested in this kind of format where you're behind the scenes on a writer's process and life, then check it out. Just started and fresh and new. So I link to it in the show notes. Also, I was a participant in the AuthorTube writing conference that's going on right now as I'm recording. All of the uh, videos and presentations will be available for replay, and I encourage you to check them out. Some great content. I did a presentation on the authorpreneur path, tips for your writing business, basically just overview of business things to consider. Writing is a business, and you need to treat it as such, regardless of whether you're starting a corporation or not. Um, just tips for running the business from a serial entrepreneur. But there's ton of, a ton of other content. Um, people like Becca Syme and Sarah Cannon, who are favorites of mine, have presentations. And yeah, I will link to the playlists on the website. And so definitely check that out if you would like, you know, one of these more low-key virtual conferences where you're learning all kinds of things from people in the field. I do have some book recommendations. I read T. Kingfisher's Nettle and Bone, which is a fantasy romance. T. Kingfisher, I really love her stuff. She's Ursula Vernon's alter ego. And like Paladin's Grace, that whole Paladin series is a favorite of mine. This is a new book, came out recently, and I really enjoyed it. It is fairy tale esque. It is her signature style. I think it takes place in the same world. It felt like the same world, although we didn't, I didn't remember hearing about any of the other countries that I see in like Sword Heart or the Paladin series. I like that she's created this world where there are gods and saints and um, like devotees to them in a very real way. Like at the beginning of Paladin's Grace, the Saint of Steel dies. And just a world where you have like the real figures and they can die and that has repercussions throughout the world. This is the story of a princess who has to go to a convent uh, so that she can't get married so that her sister's husband doesn't have any competition for his heirs. And she realizes her sister is being mistreated and she has to go on this journey to help her. And she picks up people along the way 
And it's just, it's, it's well written as all of T. Kingfisher's things are. So if you're looking for a great read, Nolan Bone. I've also been binge reading Alice Coldbreath's medieval romance series. Series is. <laughs> That's such a strange word. I recommend starting with the Vaudry Brothers because it leads right into the next series, which is The Brides of Caradoc. It's eight books. I've enjoyed them all. I just finished the last one. I think there's another one coming up sometime this summer. And there are medieval romances, which is not usually my thing, um, but I like the way she does them. And she does a great job of having every book be different, but giving you the same vibe and energy for the most part. This fifth book of the Brides of Caradoc series is different, but I loved it. It's a really great enemies to lovers, which is my favorite trope. So if you are not in the mood for to start an, a, a series or a set of series that are connected, that are eight books, you can totally start with this one, which is called An Inconvenient Vow. It's a standalone. It mentions the other characters, but it works really well as a standalone. And it is a, an exquisite enemies to lovers, just almost on the level of my favorite enemies to lovers, which is The Hating Game. Just really well done. They like these people do not like each other for real, which is a little bit different than the hating game. Um, like this is like th- you get that full expression of the arc of no one's pining at the beginning. It's not like you know secretly one loves with the other, but they just pretend to hate each other. No, they don't like each other, and they have reason to. And then you get the the journey, which is great. So I will link to that also. Highly recommend it. So my goals for this week are get to writing, get some words on the page, and figure out a schedule, hopefully hopefully by the end of the week. So that's it for me for this week. I hope that you have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lpenelope.com, and I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.